You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. Today's podcast is sponsored by Hoofcare Essentials Foundation partner, Barrier Product Distribution. I'm here in West Sussex uh, on a cool and blustery early spring day uh, because later I'm going to be giving some lectures and demos uh, to farriers here at Total Foot Protection. So this has given me the opportunity to speak to Mark Spriggs, who is one of the directors of that company. We're going to talk to him about his life as a farrier and we're going to look at uh, some issues, for example, natural balance, shoeing and uh, working on laminitics. Hello, Mark. Hi there, Simon. Nice to see you again. Yeah, you too. It's great to be down here. Um, so we're here in West Sussex. Just, just tell people, and remember, we have listeners from all over the world, where West Sussex is. West Sussex, where I live presently in a small village called Henfield, probably 15 minutes from Brighton, which is on the south coast, which is known as Little London by the Sea. So but I'm still in a pretty rural area. Okay, and we have lovely chalk downs, I? Yep, chalk downs. Um, yeah, pretty unspoiled, actually. Now, I was, I was with you uh, all this morning, and uh, the main thing that you had to do was shoe a little laminitic case uh, that you, I think you've, you've looked after those for a long time, but it had an episode last year. And uh, can you tell us how that... Uh, how that case progressed. Yes, well, he's a sweet little pony. Um, as Simon said, I've been shooting him for a very long time. He's always he's a confirmed Cushing's pony. Um, client is very on board, managed him very well. But as you know, with all these little hawk ponies, they're quite heartbreakers. You know, you, you're doing so well with them for a long period of time, and then they fall out of bed on you. And this uh, episode happened at the end of. Uh, last summer after a very dry period and uh, if the farriers certainly in the south of England know that the feet became extremely hard and very hard to actually exfoliate their soles. So on this little pony's um, shoeing cycle this particular time I went in and I think we'd had a little bit of rain and of course the sole just gave itself up and, and, and it you know just fell out the sole basically did. And I was quite astonished by the amount of foot this pony had got because actually when you looked at him from a sort of side, you know, lateral view, he didn't look particularly toey, you know. But anyway, proceeded and cutting his foot up, was pretty satisfied with what I'd done, shot him up as normal, seemed perfectly happy. Anyway, a couple of days later, the client comes on the phone, you know, saying he's been uncomfortable since, since I'd last shot him. And I thought, well, you know pretty sure he was probably going to have a laminate, possibly been in a laminitic sort of phase, but, um, you know, he'd been so good for so long, and then you question, you know, have I got the shoe a bit tight on him, and so forth, and all the rest, but anyway, I went straight back out to him, and actually, yes, no, it was, it was very obvious in his stance, and the way he was stood, that, you know, he was in quite a serious state, and foundering quite big time. So I just got his shoes off and um, put some Equisoft pads on with some impression material in the back of the foot. 
to try and stabilise the situation and, you know, he was a whole lot more comfortable, you know, once I'd sort of got the weight off the front of his foot. And, you know, it was a long, long trek to get him right, actually. Well, I saw him this morning and although we could still see the laminal wedge, he was a happy pony and, he's, and I forgot to say he was 30 years old, so we're not yeah, talking a youngster here. And uh, certainly it looked to me like you'd sorted him out until the next episode, I suppose, really. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I was very concerned about him because I'm actually very fond of him. You know, he's such a nice little pony to be around. And, uh, you know, at one point we really thought we were going to lose him. You know, both me and the client have got a good relationship. You know, she actually said, you know, do you think it's time that we, you know, put him down? But we reassessed for the support system we had on him and adjusted that and actually got him comfortable and actually allowed him outside to have a little bit of, you know, ambient sort of exercise within a confined space. He could see his friend and, uh, you know, basically he was suffering from depression as much as anything. And actually for once we got him moving, you know, everything started to turn around. So after a period of time of having him in pads, we then moved on and got some clogs on him. And, and really from that point on, Although I must actually reflect back, Mr. Bit out there actually was that uh, it wasn't until very much later before I went to put the clogs on, you know, I'd realised he got solar, quite extensive solar abscesses on both front feet. So no wonder the poor little devil was struggling. But, um, you know, once we got the clogs on there, he hasn't looked back. No, as I say, he, it was uh, it's great to see a success story like that. And he looked very happy this morning. Yeah. And he shot another horse there as well, of course. And as you say, uh, one of the things that is sometimes forgotten it isn't all about what we do. You had, uh, or the pony had an owner who was absolutely dedicated to him, wasn't she? And, uh, yeah, and absolutely on board. You know, I think one of the biggest problems we have with these type of ponies is more often the client yeah. is, um, you know, I, I, you know, and I think sometimes you know, they're potentially, the problem lies with them. And they're, you know, they feel they're doing their animals well when they're feeding all the time. Yeah. And as all farriers know, you know, kindness is the thing that kills these poor yeah. ponies. And, yeah. uh, but to have somebody, she, well, really lucky in this situation, the client will absolutely do what I tell her to do. Very sensible lady, you know, and also sensible enough to, you know, if, if we had to have called it a day, we would have called it a day. Yeah. And sometimes that's what we have to do. All right. So moving on, I know um, you you were quite early into natural balance shoeing in this country, uh, if it's still called natural balance shoeing. But um, can you can you explain that process and how you got into it? Well, and, and your link with uh, Gene Ovnichek. Well, it all came about through my business partner David Nichols. Um, had been out to the states, I think, to one of the you know, big conventions out there, and he was actually presenting himself. And um, unfortunately for him, he watched Gene Ovnik's um, presentation, his early wild horse studies. And I think he sat there going, oh my God, you know, I've just seen this, and this is quite, uh, you know, totally changed my view on horseshoe, and how the hell am I gonna go on and um, give this presentation? Anyway, out of that friendship, Dave uh, built up with Gene Ovnik, he came over to the UK. I was very lucky, actually stayed here in my house each time he came over. 
and we went out and shot horses together when you know what a what a privilege to be with you know one of the very you know leading um sort of open minds of how to you know reassess the how to shoe horses and um you know for me i i, I find it a, a very practical way of shoeing horses and we found you know, this was even prior to the hoof mapping. At this point in time, we were just drawing a line across the widest point of the foot and judging that to be the center point of articulation and, and you know, shoeing around these points. And, uh, you know, soon found that even sort of flat-footed um, thoroughbreds, after a few shoeings of shoeing them in this way, you started to get a much more uh, compact, solid foot with concavity coming to the sole. So well, I, I certainly, um, a lot of my thoroughbred broodmares, I shod with natural bound shoes. Not not the original ones, which were too big and clunky for, for thoroughbreds, but certainly the ones that came later. Um, but I noticed you had got some new shoes. Well, you've got some shoes that I've only seen from a distance today, and they are actually in the evolution a little bit further on from the early natural balance shoes aren't they yes i mean i think what you're talking about is the avanti which has been yeah. out on the market for some time um this was developed by um developed in the state states uh, through edss and a uh, chap by the name of foxworth who his wife had a warm blood and um you know he was struggling to keep this thing sound and I think there's nothing new with this shoe. I think people have been welding, you know, round bar on the inner peripheries of a horseshoe, um, you know, to get these animals right. And I mean, it's sort of based upon the principles of what the, you know, we're all familiar with the clogs now that we use on laminitics. And um, really what we're doing is we're bringing all the leverage forces away and shoeing round the, the pedal bone, basically and moving the horses, you know, weight more into the centre and taking the leverage away. And I think the, 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 the biggest problem for our equines these days is leverage. You know, I mean, especially with uh, the pleasure horse and sports horse, whether it be a dressage, a venting, reining or so forth, it's tight circles, which are, you know, our horses have never been designed to do. Well, and, and I know you and I agreed on something about that um, you don't shoe with ridiculous length and width, if I can put it that way. You, you obviously give them something to stand on, um, but you're not giving this additional uh, length and width, which has become, I think, just a little bit of a trend yes, in I, this country. I, I think it, it came back when shoeing was starting to change and we started talking about this magic rate, ratio of 40-60% and that was before we really started to understand the mechanics of horses so therefore we was rather than thinking about the shoe placement in the toe we were adding the length to the heels to try and achieve this ratio. Well if anybody you know, there's a, a practical farrier shoeing, especially sports horses that are expected to move at speed. You know, this is a totally impractical way of shoeing horses. You might get away with it with dressage horses, but, you know, you soon get sick of going back to putting shoes back on, and I can assure you, clients get sick of it, especially if they're going off to an event. And, uh, you know, they're continuously pulling shoes off. So I, I feel the way that, you know, shoeing feet, in a symmetrical way, bringing the heels back 
We always used to talk about the widest point of the frog, but it's bringing the heels back to the back of the foot. And, you know, really, you don't need to shoe any further than that. I'm sure evolution, if, if a horse required an extra pad at the back of its foot, it would have developed something like that. And I think also if the agreement is to uh, um, a, a normal um, gait, um, well, biomechanical needs is a horse is going to land slightly heel first. Um, it tends to land actually slightly lateral heel first and then onto the medial heel. Now, if you go sticking, uh, you know, a vast amount of extra length, your, your horse actually is prematurely impacting on the ground before it's ready for the loading phase. So I, I really can't see that that is beneficial. And actually what we're now in building in our shoes now is we're slumping the heels off like we used to do with the hunter shoe um, to actually give um, a break over for the heels or more of a roll in stance rather than, um, you know, the horse crashing down on, on a square shoe, so, which I think is very important. And certainly with laminitics, if you give them a roll into their stride and then out, that roll into their stride is just as beneficial as the break over going out. Yeah, and we can we see that that was done a hundred years ago. It's exactly, <laughs> nothing we new. Come around in circles, <laughs> isn't it? A bit. Now, one thing I wanted to question you about, Mark, is that um, you you have actually had a long time in a farrier partnership, and that's a little bit unusual, isn't it? Farriers all over the world seem unable to form partnerships, and I've always said. Is it because we know more than doctors and dentists and architects? Um, but you, it appears to me that you've cracked it. So if you can tell us something about the Farrier partnership. Well, the, 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 the Farrier practice was born out of, in very early days, of um, David Nichols, my business partner, well, one of my business partners, um, moving into an area and, um, you know, my clients were winding up, well, you know, you've got a rival down the road. Anyway, I took it upon myself to go down and meet David and we had a lot in common and um, over a period of time, you know, we started covering for each other and helping each other out, you know, obviously when somebody was on holiday or if unfortunately you were off ill. And then we took it a bit further, you know, we, we talked about um, forming a partnership and we actually both had quite different work practices. You know, David worked for the weekends, I didn't. I had a young family, you know. All the things that made our two business models quite different. And I think in, from what I've seen where other people have tried to do this, where they've tried to sort of put all the money in together and all that, it doesn't work because it always rears its head, well, you do more than me and so forth. So. Taking money out of the equation, I would say, is probably the route to success in running a Farrowy practice. Um, so on the basis of that, we, um, I think another guy like Mark Hobby came along, who is actually now on Vancouver Island. He was one of the original partners, and uh, Mike Williams. So there was four of us originally, and then um, one of the guys went off, as I said, to Vancouver Island. So. Between three of you, if you've got one of you away, actually it's quite doable for you to cover each other's work. And then off the back of that, um, uh, Mike has trained two apprentices. I trained my son um, and they've come part of the practice. 
Um, and also there's Be Becky Mavert, um, who was a good friend of um, Dave's. She joined the practice. She was the first um, non-sort of um, employee-based sort of person to come in. But it really works. You know, we've got seven farriers out there. And, and you know, farrier, it, it can be a very lonely world. And just having sort of other people when you're feeling a bit sort of cornered over or struggling with a, a case or a client, mm -hmm. it's so much easier when you can talk to somebody about it and share ideas. And even, you know, to the degree with, especially with David, having been such an expert in um, laminitics, it was probably more cost effective to get him to do, if you had a complicated case, to get him to do the horse than you to do it. Yeah. Well, that's, um, that, that's one part, uh, the farrier practice. And then, of course, you opened a supply business which uh, by coincidence has the same initials, TFP. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wonder why you did that. The uh, um, total foot protection. So, so tell us something about total foot protection and how it came well, about and how that works. It sort of came about an accident. I mean, and, and none of us planned to have a wholesale business. But, you know, you soon realise that the amount of um, uh, materials we were buying in, it was easier to have joint stock holding. And... Um, at that time, Brooks Lane Smithy were going then, so we were sort of uh, friendly with them. So we almost were known almost as Brooks Lane Smithy South. You know, we were stocking their shoes and um, and we used to run the business on our own, but we soon quickly found to provide a good service. Um, you know, we had to employ somebody, so we employed uh, Mike's wife who ran the shop, and it's really gone from there, you know. and. To the size of the business now, I think I confidently would say that we're probably the largest independent um, Ferrari wholesaler. And um, from our friendship with um, uh, Gene Ovnick and his family, which is um, EDSS, um, we, we David was bringing over their products for his you know use within veterinary clinics himself. So we started bringing over specialist products from you know, from America, and um, then we got involved in, you know, shoe design, and we brought out the Centrefix shoe, which was a collaboration between ourselves, Gene Ovnick, Mackhead from MNC, and, you know, we brought out the, you know, these shoes. So it's, um, and then, you know, uh, the clocks and so forth, mm -hmm. you know, we sort of, Basically, we bring in all the specialist stuff. I mean, we produce all the laminitic, you know, support systems, styrofoam, and so forth. And I think, you know, we still are probably the dominant product. And on the market, you up at Beaver, the British Equine Veterinary Association Congress, and you have a stand there, don't you? So you send, you sell to the veterinary. We, we we haven't been at a Beaver for a good few years now because the veterinary industry has really changed now. Yeah. Um, whereas you used to see the partners from the practice yeah. on the stand, they become quite big corporate organisations. Some of these things, and they tend to have buyers that are, you know, tasked with getting the things in, and they don't necessarily understand the concept of. Um, new products but I think by then we've actually established ourselves well into the veterinary market and um, we have quite a lot of vets especially ring David up for advice and product advice. Um, now just to move tack a little bit um, 
I don't know whether you'd want to talk about this. I mean, I, I was on the Harriers Registration Council for a <laughs> while, and so so have you been. But um, you you served, didn't you? Um, yeah, I, as a member for a while. I served um, three and a half years, as it turned out. Um, Apparently, I'm partially to blame for that. Part, yes, I've you were partially to blame. A certain person had dropped out, and uh, they were in a bit of a state. So I went on to the council early. Um, I enjoyed it. You know, I, 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 I certainly um, it certainly was an education, and I also sat on the disciplinary committee. And I think it would be wrong to say that I enjoyed sitting on the disciplinary committee because it was actually very challenging to be impartial um, especially when you're um, sort of judging people on something that you do so that was quite an education but I enjoyed it from the that point of view of having a better grasp of how the legal world worked and um, I, I hope that we actually always gave people a very fair hearing. I'm sure you did and I think it's worth saying that and, and using this opportunity to say to young farriers need to put themselves forward to do these sort of jobs don't they it's no good sitting back or booing from the sidelines you know you, you have to put something back in yourself don't absolutely you? absolutely because um you know i think farriery has suffered from a degree of apathy um for years i mean these positions that you take on the frc um, all right, you get paid for the day that you're, you attend, but I can assure you it goes nowhere near to um, compensating you for going out short, shoeing horses for a day. But there's also a lot of people, and I really you know, admire the people on the BFBA, who have put in considerable hours over the years, over the apprentice training you know, scheme and all the rest, and trying to drag our industry into a more professional and modern industry actually and, and you know you get a you get an awful lot of flack from people on the outside who will you know criticize you but there's very few of them that are prepared to stand up and um you know sit on the frc or these various yeah. committees you know and i think you know you can't sit in the background and complain about something unless you're prepared to actually put some put something back yourself. Yeah, yeah I'm 100% with you, Mark. And, and if everybody put themselves forward for a few years, we wouldn't have any problem, you know, getting getting these committees filled and what have you. But you and I do occasionally meet up in London uh, for um, something a little bit more social, don't we? Yes. You, you sort of travel... <laughs> two hours north and I travelled two hours south and there we are often at a dinner in London celebrating the, the farriers and uh, and sometimes have a pint of beer in a pub Oh, well, just, just a few, you know. <laughs> all to discuss business. Yes. Um, now, something um, I, I sort of learnt about you recently is that you, you have over the years, I'm not sure if you, what, what it, how much of a connection it is now, but you've had a connection with the German-speaking... Uh, countries, haven't you, with, with barriers in yeah. Germany? Yes, bizarrely. I mean, I, I, um, I must be nearly 20 years ago. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Joseph Luber who used to have a big show in called Luvex in Bavaria. And I mean, in, in its heyday, 
I think they had over 650 people from all over Europe. I mean, just a phenomenal affair. And um, they were wanting Gene Ovnick to come over and speak. Gene couldn't speak. David couldn't speak. So Muggins here sort of got pushed to the front. And um, I can assure you, giving presentations is not my forte. But anyway, I put together a slideshow and um, a dear friend of mine now, Oliver Erica, who's a very accomplished farrier himself, um, translated. And he's a big, huge um, German guy, you know, and there was me, and I mean, I'm not exactly small, but I mean, he dwarfed me. And I think we very much looked like Laurel and Harley, you know, double act. Um, but from that, you know, I've been going backwards and forwards to Germany for the last 20 years. Um, both me and David and Gene Ovnick have done various clinics over there, built up some great friendships through Austria and Germany and, and into Holland itself as well. Um, but also we, as a wholesale business, we um, sell into the German market via Andreas Strong, who I would say probably is the largest, um, again, independent wholesaler in the world, actually. It's just a phenomenal amount of stuff. But um, out of that, I have tried to learn <laughs> to speak German. <laughs> I have a German lesson every Monday, but uh, um, I'm very long way off from being able to speak German, but I certainly understand a lot more that's going on. Well, we're going to test your oh, German. No. <laughs> we're going to test your German because I would like you to say, Sir, if your horse doesn't stand still, I cannot shoe it. Can you do that in German? No, I'm very sorry. Oh, oh man. <laughs> I could probably come out with some German expletives, but I don't no, think it would be suitable for this. So no. how long have you had these every Monday lessons? I've been doing it for nearly two and a half years. And, and, and the problem is it's an extremely grammatic language. I'm dyslexic and um, I struggle with English. So why I ever thought I was going to be able to speak German. But the thing is, I think <laughs> if, if I worked in Germany and yeah. certainly when I'm over in Germany and especially I've had a few German beers, um, my fluency in German actually very much is improves. I think it, what it comes from is being shy, actually, and, and what I need to do is speak yeah. in German, really. And, and, it's, um, and also the problem when you're dealing with a technical aspect of like Farrery or any kind of technical um, language, it's, you know, I can easily go into a restaurant or into a hotel or ask directions in German and will understand it. But when it comes down to you know, asking for sort of the anatomy and explaining the, the biomechanics benefits of our shoe in German, I'm afraid. And I, I, that's very difficult. I think I can go as far as I know that clubfoot is bock hoof. Yeah. And that's my lot, really, in German. Yeah. Um, now, you and I, Mark, are the same age. We're 62. Uh, we've been shooting about the same... 42, year. 43 years now, I think. 43, well, I'm a couple of years ahead of you. I, yeah. I got kicked out of school earlier than you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, you're relatively fit. You're still shoeing. Yeah. Uh, how do you account for that? Um, I, th I think I'm, I'm very fortunate to be in a fairly secure financial position. Um with the wholesale business, it provides me with a small income. Um, 
and I don't have a mortgage, which is great these days. So I don't, and all my kids are grown up. I've done all the university thing with them, but I think, um, I think it's sort of um, charging the right sort of money for your work, actually. Yeah. Uh, no, so that, therefore you don't have to compete on numbers. Don't compete on numbers. I can't compete on numbers. I just can't do it anymore. But you know, I do seem to have still some kind of reputation, certainly within the dressage world. Um, able to keep animals relatively sound so you know I, th I think farriers sell themselves very short on their perceived value what you know they are to their clients yeah. and I think certainly in the environment that we are with at the moment of you know economic downturn but also the farrier populace being probably the highest it's ever been for many many years that you know, it's coming extremely competitive out there. And, uh, and as a young farrier these days starting out, you know, I have every sympathy for them. But I think all that, how I see it, and this might be a simplistic way of doing it, is that the age old thing that we're all stuck with it is it's all about how many horses we can do rather than actually doing less horses for more money. And I think until that mentality goes out of the industry, which actually, sadly, I don't think it ever will. You know, I don't think the lot for farriers will improve, but I think it's very much up to the individual to make that decision to, you know, you, you, know, you have to market yourself, you have to educate yourself, you have to do CPD, you know, and, and you know, be progressive and open-minded in the way you're going to shoot horses. Well, usually at this point, I ask my victims uh, what is the most important thing they've learned in their life, but I think you've actually told us something very important that you've learned about farriery, and that is to charge enough, and then when you get to our age, uh, you're not worried about how you're going to get through the day because of your back, because you're still trying to shoot eight horses a day. Absolutely, you know, I, I couldn't think of anything more daunting now. I mean, I, as I said to Simon earlier today, you know, I can remember exactly where I was on the piece of road driving and thinking to myself, do you know what? I've had enough of this, you know, doing six, seven, eight horses a day, you know, and, and you get to 45, 50, you're starting to struggle. Yeah. And, and, you know, I recommend to any farriers to sort of think about, you know, your future because... You know, we're all pretty fragile at the end of the day, and we do break. And I think you need to have a backup plan. I mean, when I came into the industry, I actually did the AEF course, which was the Agricultural Engineers and Farriers course up at Hereford. You know, we did a broad spectrum of subjects, you know, from raw, raw time, decorative iron work, to industrial blacksmithing, welding, machine shop, agricultural engineering. I, and I know those industries have really changed in their ways, but I suppose what I'm trying to say to other farriers, other farriers now, who's starting to get perhaps into their middle age, and I say middle age are probably around 35, 40, is that you need to start thinking about possibly developing another skill. Yeah, another another income Another stream. income stream, absolutely. Yeah, I would say... I'd have to say all the smart farriers I've met, yeah. they, they do try and develop another way in the middle stages and, of their career. And think about your pension. You know, I think the, 
The problem for young farriers is you come out from being an apprentice, all of a sudden, you know, you've got all this money in your pocket and, you know, you, you, you think you, you live the high life and you, you want this and want that. But, you know, and I've done that as well myself. But, you know, I put my money into property and, you know, ended up at the end of the day with no mortgage and probably sort of equity rich and cash poor. But, you know, I'd much rather be there that I, like I am now than still got a mortgage that I've got to pay until I'm 70. So... And, and you're, you're here in the rich part of um, England, so certainly property prices, uh, they certainly cost down here. Now, Mark, um, it's been fantastic speaking to you. As always, we always have some fun, and uh, uh, I'm sure we'll keep on meeting up quite regularly. I want to thank you for your words of wisdom, telling us about your life, and it's been a great privilege for me to interview you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Simon. <laughs> Thanks, mate. We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.